turn to our text this evening, to the book of Romans, the book of Romans in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Quite a number of years ago, J.C. Ryle one time said that when men talk about heaven, they talk about something they don't know what they're talking about. And the reason he said that is because, generally speaking, the scriptures don't tell us a whole lot about heaven. They tell us more about what heaven is not like. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more darkness, no, no need for light. All of these things that it's not, but they don't tell us a whole lot about what it is. But every now and then, the curtain is drawn back, as it were, and we are granted a glimpse of what is going on in the courts of God. And that is indeed what we find in the book of Revelation, particularly in chapters 4 and 5. There we are able to see the host of heaven gathering around the throne of God. And there with thousands times thousands of redeemed sinners exclaiming, praising God for who he is and what he's done. My friends, their words and actions give us a clear picture of what biblical worship should look like. And what are they doing? They are, they are praising God. They are rejoicing in him. And one of the most telling things that we see in this picture is how they respond to the work of redemption in their own souls. So here are these redeemed saints in heaven and what are they doing? We read in Revelation 5 and verses 9 and 10. They sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. And then listen. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priest to our God. The work of redemption produces a desire and the ability to serve God, even in heaven, 
They are as kings and as priests to serve him and do his blessed will. Now, ladies and gentlemen, one of the things that I want you to see tonight is you don't have to wait till you get to heaven to join this chorus of those praising God and gladly yielding service in his kingdom and for his glory. As a matter of fact, our text tonight from Romans 12 shows how the Apostle Paul calls upon these believers in the first century in Rome to do just that. He calls upon them to think about what God has done in their souls. He reminds them of God's mercy in revealing himself to them and in redeeming their souls through the work of Christ. And that mercy and that redemption naturally leads forth to a wholehearted dedication of their lives in the service of God. And that is what we're going to focus on this evening. Five things that I want you to consider. Number one, I want you to see the apostles' gracious appeal to them. Secondly, I want you to see the earnest reminder the apostle gives them of the mercies of God. And then his sweeping exhortation to present themselves as living sacrifices to God. And then his concrete explanation of what that sacrifice looks like. And lastly, a very vivid description of the details of offering ourselves unto God. First, I want us to think about the apostles' gracious appeal. It was quite a few years back, but when my children were little and they were all gathered around the, the dinner table, invariably someone would say, pass the dish of whatever. And the person on the other end of the table would pick the dish up and then say, and how are you supposed to ask for this? They were looking for that magic word, please. The point here is what you say is not the only thing that's important. It is equally important how you say it. And here is the Apostle Paul, the great unusually gifted man who wrote more than a third of the New Testament. Here is a, a man writing to these people in Rome. And my friends, I want you to see it's not just what he says. What he says was very important. But I want you to see how he says it. In these two verses, he is very gracious. His tone is unmistakable. Here, this, this gifted apostle speaks with tenderness. 
He speaks with humility and kindness and love. Look at verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. It's very interesting is the way, the manner in which Paul addresses these believers. Lloyd-Jones points out that many of these people in Rome were slaves or hired servants or sold soldiers in the Roman court. They were not exactly the bright and best of Roman society. Not only that, they were very young in their faith. None of them had memorized the shorter catechism. None of them knew the details of God's eternal plan. None of them understood theology. They were very young congregation in the things of the Lord. And yet here is this apostle, though himself a man of extraordinary gifts, though he had been trained at the feet of Gamaliel, though he understood the mysteries that he had received by direct revelation in the wilderness, he writes to these people and he does not talk down to them. He writes and he addresses them as his brethren. Here, these weak, perhaps ignorant individuals and Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. He addresses them kindly, affectionately. Mark the words, I beseech you. We don't usually use that kind of language today. But that idea of beseeching means pleading. It means literally begging. It means Calling upon people, imploring them. What the apostle is doing is with profound gentleness and yet genuine concern for the care of their souls. This great apostle writes and he says, I beseech you. The way he deals with these brothers and sisters in the faith. You know, this is not an isolated incident. We have a very similar situation in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7 where Paul is writing to them. And this is what he says, that we were gentle among you as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. I imagine quite a number of women in this congregation understand that very well. But all of us understand it, do we not? How gentle. Mother holds that baby in her arms and nurses it, cares for it, provides for it. And Paul says, that's the way we were with you in Thessalonica. And now he's writing to these Romans, kind of a, a, a rough bunch. And Paul says, I beseech you. Brethren, very gracious. He pleads with them with gentleness and deep affection. 
And brothers and sisters, we can learn an awful lot from the apostles' words here. They're not deep. They're not mysterious. They're very practical. And we can learn how we are to deal with one another, especially when the need arises for admonition or correction or rebuke sometimes happens, but do it with gentleness. Do it with genuine affection. Parents, for your children, brothers and sisters among one another, when you have cause to confront your brother or sister, do it with gentleness. As the Apostle Paul does here, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Secondly, I want you to see the apostle's earnest reminder, because he doesn't seek to persuade these people to do what he wants them to do with just kind, gushy words. But rather, he calls specific attention to the mercies of God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Here is the glorious motive, as one writer puts it, that melts our hearts and fills it with gratitude towards God for his mercies. By the mercies of God. Paul wants them to think, and, and as one puts it, oh, these five little words. In these five little words, the apostle gathers up the whole scope and breadth of God's gracious dealings with us and with them. What Paul is doing here is, is reminding them in one phrase, he's going back and he's He's bringing in everything that he has dealt with in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. You think about the mercies of God in salvation. In chapter 1 when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. My friends, Paul is reminding them, remember the mercy of God. Remember the, the work of salvation in your heart. In chapter 4, he deals with forgiveness. What we see in David as he quotes from Psalm 32, the forgiveness of our sins. In chapter 5, the gift of faith. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's his mercy to us. In chapter 6, he deals with our union with Christ. We're buried with him in baptism. We're united to him in newness of life, raised from the dead. And then in chapter 8, all the glorious promises that God gives us. You think about the very opening verse of chapter 8. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, remember that. Remember these precious promises that God has given. 26, that the Spirit helps us in our prayers when we don't know what to pray for as we ought. 
Verse 28, all things work together for good for those that love God and are the called according to his purpose. And then he continues in, in verse 32, how shall he who gave us his son not give us all things? He fills their minds with thoughts of the mercies of God. But he doesn't stop there. Think about what Paul says about the Jews and the nation of Israel in chapters 9 through 11. That to Israel belongs the promises, belongs the glory, belongs the covenant, belongs the law. They had all those blessings. And now all those blessings have come upon the Gentiles. That's you and me, brethren. Paul says, by the mercies of God. Remember, brethren, stop. Think tonight about all the ways in which God has showed his kindness to you. His infinite love to you. His mercy and forgiveness. The grace and blessings that he has poured upon your souls from the very first moment of your conversion, even before when he worked to draw you to himself, until the very day of your communion and the joys and the blessings you have enjoyed at God's hand by the mercies of God. This is what Paul wants to remind them of. It's striking, is it not? The way, way Paul puts this. I want you to remember the mercies of God. Do you remember how the psalmist writes in Psalm 103? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord. And one of the most staggering statements, I think, in all of Scripture. Bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits. Brethren, how could we possibly forget the benefits God has bestowed upon us. He forgives our transgression. He heals our diseases. He redeems our life from destruction. He crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies. He even gives us good things to eat and drink. Don't forget. That's what Paul's saying. Don't forget. Remember, I beseech you, brother. By the mercies of God. Count them. Pile them up. Re review them. Go over them. And thank God for them. You know, as I, I think about the young people in this congregation. And I was mentioning to the elders before we came out about my, my youth. And that I was 16 years old before I heard the gospel. Young people, bless God for the gift of mercy and goodness that he has shown to you. To have you in this congregation where you hear the word of life week in and week out. 
thank God for godly parents that train you and teach you and and encourage you in the things of God. Nothing is a greater blessing than that. Don't forget that. Don't forget the benefits God has bestowed upon you. Well, thirdly, the apostles' sweeping exhortation. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, listen, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, if you're even remotely familiar with your Bibles, and I'm satisfied most of you are well familiar with your Bibles, how can you hear these words and not think about the Old Testament worshipers? Every time they came into the courts of God, every time they came to the sanctuary, to the temple later, to the tabernacle, what did they do? They had to bring an animal. Depending on their, their economic status, it would be a, a large animal or it might be a very small animal, a turtle dove. But they would bring an animal. And they would bind that animal and they would sacrifice it on the altar to have peace with God and assurance of forgiveness of sin. In the same way, Paul says, I want you not to bring an animal. We don't have to do that anymore. But he says, I want you to present yourselves. I want you to come and bring your bodies, your hearts, your minds, your will, everything. I want you to bring it all and give it to God, present it to God as a living sacrifice. When you think about all the blessings God has bestowed, when you think about the sweetness of communion with Christ, I read recently, uh, this past week, one of the grace gems. I don't know how many of you may read those. But Charles Simeon wrote, to commune with Christ is our duty. But to enjoy that communion is our privilege. You have enjoyed that communion with Christ just yesterday. What do you, how do you respond to that? This is how you respond. That you present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. This word present means to give over. So just a few chapters earlier in Romans chapter 6 in verse 13, Paul writes, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. The idea is yielding over our members, our parts of our body, our minds, our tongues, our ears, whatever. Don't 
yield them over as instruments of unrighteousness to commit sin, but rather yield yourselves in light of the mercies of God to you. Yield yourselves, offer up yourselves to the Lord as a living sacrifice. You come before God and you cry, Lord, here I am. I am yours. I resign. I devote myself, every part and parcel of my being, my body, my soul, my mind, my will, my heart, my aspirations. They are yours. I give myself to you like a living sacrifice. That's what Paul wants them to do in response to the mercies of God. You know, Paul also wrote to the Corinthians similar language. In chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Do you understand that, my friends? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. And that price was the blood of Jesus Christ upon the cross for you. And now Paul says, as a living sacrifice, offer yourselves to God. Glorify God in your body and in your soul, which are God's. You are not your own. If God has blessed you, if God has washed you from your sins in the blood of the Lamb, if God has redeemed your soul, if He has given you faith and repentance, that you are trusting in Him, my friends, you do not belong to yourself anymore. You belong to Christ. Give yourself. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Very simple question, but one that every single one of us needs to ask. Have you done that? Have you offered yourselves, your whole being, like a living sacrifice and said, God, I am yours. Show me how you want me to live. Show me what you want me to do. Show me where you want me to live. Show me how you want me to serve. I am yours. Do with me as you will. I like the way Augustine puts it when he says, Lord, give what you command and command what you will. If God will give what he commands, what delights him, what pleases him, then he can ask whatever he wants and we will do it. Give what you command and command what you will. Well, fourthly, the apostles' concrete explanation. 
the apostle's not speaking in vague generalities here. He doesn't just say, well, I, I want you just to offer yourselves kind of like the sacrifices in the Old Testament. And in, in general, that's the idea. No, what the apostle does in verse 1, the latter part of verse 1, is he sketches a picture with concrete detail of what this dedicated life looks like. Look at what he says. He uses three words to make it crystal clear exactly what he's talking about. Number one, living. Living sacrifice. In contrast, of course, to those animals that were killed. One-time one act, that was it. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices. In other words, every day, repeatedly, we are coming to God and saying, here I am, I am yours. Show me what you want me to do. Repeatedly, daily, renewing our co covenant obligation, binding ourselves as it were, and giving ourselves over to God over and over and over every day. Living sacrifice. Secondly, holy, holy and acceptable, he says. Holy. The biblical idea is, is often a little different than what people tend to think of today when they think about a holy sacrifice. Well, it, it should have some special characteristics or it should be done in some special place. The biblical idea of holiness is not a list of do's and don'ts. If you do this and this and this, and if you don't do that and the other, then you will be holy. But in Scripture, the idea of holiness or sanctifying work of grace is that of being set apart to God. Of being set apart to God. Again, if you're familiar with your Bibles, you may know a good bit about the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was a mess. They had problems coming out their ears. They, they had sin and, and issues that, that were just going on and on and on. And yet Paul writes to the church of God at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, to those who are sanctified. To the saints in Corinth, to the holy ones. How in the world can Paul think of these people with all their sin and confusion about charismatic gifts and, and abuse of the Lord's Supper? And on and on it goes. How could he call them holy ones? Because they were set apart to God. Brethren, we'll, we'll never be perfect in this life. That's not an excuse for sin. We need to understand this idea of holiness as being set apart to God. 
If you're going to offer yourselves not only as a living sacrifice, but as a holy sacrifice, then that means that commitment, that concrete commitment of yourself to God must take place every day. You must come to God and say, Lord, I want to live according to your revealed will. It's striking the way the Messiah speaks in Psalm 40 and verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And my friends, if you want to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice that is holy to God and set apart to Him, then every day you need to be going to that written word and put the law of God in your hearts and trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding in all your ways. Not just Sundays, not just communion seasons, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. You go to God and you trust in Him always. In all your ways you acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. And then acceptable. So living, holy, acceptable. You realize that? That you, brothers and sisters, weak, frail, sinful creatures who haven't been perfected can be acceptable. To God. How can that be? It's a staggering thought. That I can offer myself and be acceptable. In the sight of God. How can that happen? Well it's not because of the act of offering yourself as a sacrifice. Nothing that we do. Nothing that we give to God. Can be acceptable in itself. That's why the prophet Isaiah says, all our righteousnesses, the multitude of our duties and attempts to serve God are like filthy rags in his sight. There's only one way that you and I can be acceptable in the Lord. And Paul mentions it in Ephesians 1.6 when he says we are accepted in the beloved. We are accepted when we are united by faith to Jesus Christ. And then as we heard the other night, we are clothed with the garments of salvation. We are dressed in a robe of righteousness that is not our own. It's perfect. Because it's the righteousness of Christ. If you're outside of Christ. If you're not in the beloved. If you've not put your trust in him. My friends you can't be acceptable to God. 
But if you are in Christ, you stand not on your own merit, but solely upon the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul told Titus, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. That is the way we can be living, holy, acceptable sacrifices. Well, lastly, the apostle's vivid description where the mercies of God have been truly and experientially embraced, tasted by the soul, that soul is gladly going to respond by giving itself up to God. There are two words here in verse 2 that are very important for us as we think about presenting ourselves to God as living sacrifices. The one is conformed, the other is transformed. Conformed and transformed. They're both imperatives and they're both passives. Now, <laughs> I was well up into my 30s before I took Greek. And before that, I couldn't have explained English grammar to you at all. I wouldn't have known what an imperative was. I wouldn't have known what a passive voice was. An imperative is not an option. It's a command. It's absolutely essential. And do not be conformed to this world is an imperative. And be transformed by the renewing of your mind is an imperative. This is not multiple choice. This is absolute command from the Lord Jesus Christ to his people. And they're passive. Now, if you, if you understand this sense of what it means to have a passive verb, an active verb is Bob kicked the ball. Bob did it. He kicked the ball. The passive is Bob was kicked by the mule. He didn't do it. It happened to him by someone or something else. And that's what we're dealing with here. On the one hand, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't do this. Don't be conformed to the world. The word conformed is literally be pressed into a mold. In other words, you're, it's, it's going to change the shape of whatever is poured into the mold when it congeals. It's going to come out like that mold. And in this case, the mold is this world. It's the way this world thinks. It's the way this world talks. It's the way this world acts. And Paul says, don't be conformed to the thinking of this world, to the desires of this world, to the ideas of this world, of what this world thinks really matters. 
What's important according to the world? Money. Sex. Pleasure. Comfort. That's what this world thinks is, is critical. And Paul says, don't be conformed to that way of thinking. Of what the world thinks is important. Of what the world thinks is going to make you happy. My friends, this was a problem back in Paul's day. It was a problem for the Apostle John when he writes in 1 John 2.15, Stop loving the world and the things that are in the world. That's what the word literally means. Not simply do not love the things of the world, but stop loving the things of the world. It was a problem then. It's a problem today. This world is full of glitter and flash and pleasure and comfort and riches. And it's constantly seeking to seduce the people of God. Come in, throw your lot in with us. Paul says, do not be conformed to the image of this world. The second word. Be transformed. This is even more vivid. This is the Greek word metamorphose, from which we get metamorphosis. What Paul is describing is be radically changed. We're not talking about changing a tart apple to a sweet apple. We're talking about changing a rock into a piece of coconut pie. We're talking about a radical change is going to take place. That's what Paul is saying. Be metamorphosis. You know what metamorphosis is? Usually think of it in terms of that creepy little caterpillar worm goes into that cocoon as a creepy worm and comes out as a beautiful butterfly. That's a radical change. And when you give yourself to Christ, your whole life will be radically changed. Your thinking is going to change. Your desires are going to change. Your language is going to change. Everything is going to change. Be transformed. Be metamorphosed by the radical work of grace as you give yourself as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to God. How does it happen? It happens by a constant renewing of your mind. A mind that is renewed by the word of God and by the spirit of God complete reordination or, or orientation of your, your thinking and your desires. 
every day going to God in prayer, in the word, and you're going to be changed. John Murray makes a very interesting note here. He says this is not the beggarly notion of a second blessing, but the idea of constant renewal every day being renewed in our minds, being radically changed, conformed more and more to the image of Christ, becoming more and more like him. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, especially by the recent blessings bestowed upon you in your communion season, offer yourselves to God as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to him. Don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we confess we are so weak, we are so frail, mere creatures of dust. How can we even begin to obey your commands? except to say with your servant of old, give what you command, Lord, and command what you will. Help us this night to weigh carefully these blessed words as a fitting response to the mercies you have bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Bless us and use us this day and all our days for the glory of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.